We have been looking through the book of Judges, and by the way, I cannot think of a better song to have sung before today's message than Great is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, The book of Judges is about a faithful God in a broken world. And as we near the end of the book of Judges, we have the last judge, Samson, to deal with, the strongest and the worst um, judge. if I haven't shattered all of your preconceived notions and your flannel board puppet show images of the book of Judges yet, this will absolutely do it. Uh, Samson is the last judge in the book. After Samson, by the way, just to encourage you, it gets worse. Uh, But Samson is just the last judge, and he, his parents, the whole nation are just such a mess but God is faithful. God's faithfulness is great. And I'm going to really just tell you that this whole story is not about Samson. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to find something we can elevate in Samson's character that we say, do this. Um, Samson is, he is a mess. And what we're going to look at this week is the arrival of Samson. His name, by the way, means sunny boy, which in and of itself may not be a positive thing. Um, He lived uh, near a town that was famous for worshiping the sun. (laughs) His parents may have named him after a pagan god. Um, Shemesh is the, the sun god in the ancient world. And his name is related to that. It's a diminutive form of the sun god. Um, he, he may be Sunny Boy, and we don't know for sure exactly. It doesn't tell us why they named him Samson, but they named him Samson. I've got a couple of resources out at the Connection Center uh, uh, that you might be interested in. You may not be interested in. One talks about us having an attitude check uh, as we read this story, and then highlighting God's grace. And then I've given you um, Bob Chisholm's... Uh, his lessons from these last few judges, and these are his applications from Samson. He kind of talks you through the whole story and what is going on and what we can learn from that. And then I want to point out something for about three of you in the room, okay? Uh, John Milton wrote a poem with 1,758 lines, okay? It's a long, long poem. It's called Samson Agonistes. Uh, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, uh, John Milton, very uh, famous uh, English poet. Uh, uh, He knew scripture really well. He learned Hebrew by the time he was 11 years old, Uh, was very familiar with the Bible, has written a number of things. But this in particular, Samson Agonistes, took me about three hours to read, um, is really fascinating and so I guess I would challenge you, if you're into this kind of thing, the three of you who are, who are thinking, maybe I would read a 1,700-line poem. Uh, it is really good. You can find it on the internet in lots of different places. It's such a, a famous and significant poem. You can find um, like study guides for it that are just a few paragraphs. I would encourage you to even read that. But it's a really fascinating imagination of Samson in prison at the end of his life reflecting back on his life and then going to uh, that last scene where he tears down the temple. Um, But it's 1,758 verses of Old English poetry. So it's fascinating, and um, it'll help you sleep, maybe. 
Okay? Uh, I'm going to start off with the whole big idea at the beginning. Okay? Kenneth Way captures the idea of this first story. There's four chapters on Samson. More material on Samson than any of the other judges. And he's the worst. <laughs> um, the whole first chapter that we're going to look at today, Judges chapter 13, is just about his birth. It just gets us to him being born. But it's going to set up the whole cultural situation that's going on. And, and Kenneth Way captures the message, and I'm going to really try to land this. Uh, he says this, God may initiate a plan of deliverance for his people because he's gracious, not because they deserve it. Um, we're going to see in this passage, at the end of the book of Judges, as God's people continue to move away from him more and more and more, this is not really the climax, but it's getting toward the climax of how much they have uh, moved away from him, that God is still going to deliver them, not because they deserve it, not because they earn it. In this passage, not even because they ask for it in a pitiful way. All of their asking up to this point has been crying out in agony without very much repentance, if any repentance at all. But now, God is going to deliver them when they don't even ask for it. Um, the scenes that take place here take place uh, in Philistia. If you want to understand where that is, uh, contemporary version, it's the Gaza Strip, okay? It's, a, it's the Gaza Strip where a lot of people um, are, are fighting now. There's a lot of people who would like to inhabit it. It's a really nice coastal area uh, that benefits from the rains that come up off of the Mediterranean and the rains dump out before they hit this little ridge about halfway through Israel, Okay. So the contemporary Gaza Strip is where the Philistines lived. All of the activity takes place right in this small little area where the Philistines are. Um, and the Philistines are, um, boy, they're a perennial problem for the Israelites um, because they are strong Greek sea people. That's basically who they are. They're very Greek. In fact, there's a lot of connections between um, the Greek legends and the Philistines and what goes on in Samson, um, in terms of how they fight battles, they like these champions. If you'll remember Goliath, he's a Philistine because the, these guys like champions. And Samson, he's a champion. Uh, there's a lot of riddles going on. The Greeks love all of these riddles and all of that. They're very much Greek influence. And Samson loves to run around in this area. This is where he's at. His tribe um, is the tribe of Dan, which is just north of this Philistine area. And that tribe never was able to get the, the Philistines out. In fact, later on in the book, we're going to see the tribe of Dan's going to move way up north because they just couldn't handle the Philistines. But what happens with um, Samson is he's the one who's going to begin to deal with the Philistine issue. Now, this begin issue is going to become, I'm going to highlight it as we move through here. Samson's going to begin it Samuel, who's going to follow, and Samuel and Samson probably overlap pretty significantly. Uh, Samuel's going to advance this, um, and then David is going to kind of finish driving the Philistines out. Um, just a couple orientations to, to Samson, because I think uh, some of you probably have a lingering mentality that Samson is a hero. You know, he's not sure which part of the universe he's in. Is he in the Marvel universe or the DC universe? But he's certainly in one of those universes as a hero, right? Um, I guess I want to encourage you, as we're going through these next few messages on Samson, I want you to try to imagine, do you think he um, looked 
the part of the superhero? Did he look like a, um, a beefed up, strong Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of guy? Or do you think he looked more puny? Um, just think about it in terms of how people are reacting and, and the questions they're asking. I want you to try to imagine that and uh, ask yourself who God is using and what's going on in this passage. Uh, Alan Ross says this, we, we call Samson a judge because that's what the text says. He's the last judge, but he doesn't quite do what other judges have done. Um, he never raises an army. Not a single person ever fights alongside him. It is always just he himself alone. All the other judges raise people around them. They, they are kind of like these warlords. They're these chieftains who, who gather an army and then they go and defeat somebody. Um, they may have a personal issue that, or a personal uh, involvement in it like Ehud um, or even uh, like um, Jael, someone like that. Um, but there's armies involved. With, with Samson, no army. He's all by himself. Um, J.I. Packer calls Samson the Popeye of the Bible. He, um, he, he, I think he, Packer, at least, imagines him as just this scrawny guy, and instead of eating spinach, all of a sudden the Spirit comes upon him, he does something great, and then he does something stupid to violate his vows, and then he's back to, you know, scrawny little Popeye again. It does seem that way. He has this Popeye-ish figure about him. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at this first scene of of his family and the family that he was born into. And, um, and you may disagree with some of my analysis. There's a lot of different ways that you can pick apart this story. Um, and you may not agree with the details, but everybody in general is going to agree when they're studying this passage that his family is not a stellar spiritual family that he's being born into. There are some problems. Now, I'm going to highlight a bunch of things, and you may not agree with me on all of them, um, but I think his family uh, is, is questionable, and um, you'll see it as we move through here. The first thing I want to highlight, and this is really the point of the whole message, is that the grace of God is available to us even when we don't ask. Throughout this, throughout this whole story, um, the nation of Israel has cried out to the Lord. They don't even do that here. God's going to deliver his chosen people, not because they deserve it, earn it, or even ask for it, but solely on the basis of his grace. Um, here's, the, here's how the passage starts out. And again, the Israelites did evil. This is the eighth time we read this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and Yahweh gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the longest period of oppression in the entire book by, by two times. They are oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. Now, what we normally read at this point is, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We've had some conversation about whether that crying out is true repentance or whether it's just in agony and misery, just going, I can't take this anymore. Um, But it's strangely absent from this passage. They don't even cry out to the Lord. In fact, what you're going to see later in the story, not today, what you're going to see later in the story is that when Samson begins to deliver them, they basically come to him and say, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you messing up the program here? We figured out how to live with these Philistines, and you're going to tip over the cart here. Um, In fact, it's his countrymen that betray him at one point. 
Um, so not only have they um, gotten to the point that they, they don't even cry out, <laughs> They've, they're, they're the proverbial frog in the kettle. They've been in the culture so long that they, they just believe this is how we have to live. Um, Mary Evans says, we see God's response both to the evil within Israel and to their needs, even though the needs here are unacknowledged by the people. They don't know they have the needs. Del Ralph Davis, I'm trying to make a point here. They have apparently grown accustomed to servitude. In fact, in the Samson cycle, they are content with it. Surprise should anyone suggest otherwise. Al Ross says, when Samson begins to deliver, it's the people of God who betray him into the hands of the Philistines. The people would rather live in bondage to the Philistines than to have someone make waves. This plays out frequently in the Bible, and I'm sad to say in the life of the church. If we can just figure out how we can make it in the culture that's, that's totally against us, <laughs> do we want anybody who's going to make waves with that? Again, Kenneth Way says, first and foremost, God is taking the initiative to start the process of deliverance, even though Israel never cries out for his help. God helps them because they need it, not because they want it or deserve it. This is grace. I want to go back to the song we sang. Great is thy faithfulness. Lousy is our faithfulness. But God is the hero of these stories. If I could do anything with your perception of the book of Judges, it's not just to dismantle um, these heroes and kind of show their, their weaknesses. It is to replace that with, yeah, they're weak, they're frail, they blow it, but God is the hero. <laughs> God is faithful. God is the deliverer. You can count on him. He will always do what is right. So we read there's, there's, there's evil that's going on. We don't know exactly what it is here, but it's, it's all, all wrapped up in, in being accustomed to the culture and, and living like they live and, and worshiping the gods that they worship, selling their lives out for the values of the world. But in the middle of that, God is going to reach down to a family. Um, let's analyze what this family is like. There was a certain man from Zorah, from the tribe of the Danites, and his name was Manoah. Um, his name is related to something like hope. The name Noah means hope, and he's, he's kind of this uh, man with some hope. His wife was infertile and did not bear children. And an angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman. Interesting. The angel of the, Yahweh appears to the woman, not, not what you would necessarily think in this patriarchal culture. And he said to her, Behold, you are infertile and have not born children. It's, like, it's almost like he's rubbing it in. But you will conceive and bear a son. So the angel of the Lord, in all likelihood, we don't know for sure, but in all likelihood, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Um, but they're confused by it, by the way, you'll see. Um, he appears to the woman, which is pretty unexpected, Although in the book of Judges, women do some really great things. Uh, women are elevated. And I think that's happening in this passage again. Once more, a, a woman is more the hero than, than the man. He appears and he says, you have been infer infertile and I'm going to open your womb. This is not the only time God has done this. He has done this with, with uh, Sarah. He's done it with uh, Rebecca. He's done it with Rachel. He's going to do it with um, Samuel's mother, Hannah. He's going to do it with Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
the angel keeps talking. So then, woman who, by the way, we don't know her name, Manoah's wife, that's, that's all we know. So then, be careful and do not drink wine or strong drink. Do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and bear a son. No razor will touch his head because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth. And it is he who will begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This angel uh, approaches her and says, listen, I need you to start living like a Nazarite. I need you to start doing the things that a Nazarite would do because your son is going to be a Nazarite. So from, from conception, all of the Nazarite separations to God, all of those should, should take place. So I need you to live like a Nazarite. Number six gives us the, the details of that. And it says, and he will begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Um, if you'll remember, back in chapter 10, um, the Israelites cry out to the Lord, and, and God basically says, I've had it with you guys. I will no longer deliver you like I have before. Um, and, and he doesn't fully deliver them. And, and even with Samson, the last judge, he's just going to begin to deliver them. It's going to take Samuel and David to finish this off. This word begin is, is uh, as Barry Webb would say, ominous. Um, it doesn't say what you were expecting. And you're going to have a son and he will deliver Israel because that's what's happened all through this thing. You, you, you see their evil, their oppression. It's just how the cycle works. They sin, they're oppressed, they cry out. God sends a deliverer. This last one, he says, I'm going to send somebody and he's going to begin to deliver. It's not that it's some kind of special word. It's just an unexpected word at this point. You're, you're expecting, and he will deliver the people. Nope. <laughs> He's going to begin to deliver the people. Just to make it clear, here's the two predictions the angel of the Lord makes. To Manoah's wife, interestingly, she's not named. He's named, she's not. We'll keep talking about that. Manoah's wife, the angel says, you need to observe the Nazarite vow. You're going to have a son. He needs to observe the Nazarite vow. And he will begin to deliver. This is the promise. Okay? Let's see how she handles that. And the woman came to her husband saying, A man of God came near to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him from where he came, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Look, you will conceive and bear a son. So then do not drink wine or strong drink and do not eat anything unclean for the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Now, if you're reading closely, you're going to notice there's a few differences here. <laughs> um, I mean, she, she recognizes something's going on. She's not spiritually in tune enough to recognize exactly what it is at this point, but she recognizes this is an awesome thing. Um, but she leaves something out. And I wouldn't have paid as much attention to this if I weren't so familiar with the Genesis 2 and 3 passage where God says to Adam, you can freely eat from any trees in the garden, but from the tree in the middle of the garden, you can't eat from it or you will surely die. And then later on, Eve, reporting on a conversation, obviously, that they should have had at least, Eve doesn't say we can freely eat. She just says we can eat. Eve says not, um, we can't eat from the one tree in the middle of the garden. She says we can't eat from it or touch it. 
And she doesn't say, we will surely die. She just says, we will die. There's a lack of precision that led to the first encounter with temptation and sin. There's a little bit of a lack of precision here, too. If you'll notice, she leaves out the whole, he will begin to deliver Israel. She didn't say that. She doesn't report that. I don't know why. I don't know if, if, she's, if she's kind of like Israel thinking, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. But it's really interesting that she, in the report to her husband, doesn't even put in there that he's going to deliver. And she adds another little thing. He'll be a Nazarite until the day of his death. She's adding a little bit. Now, maybe that's an ominous foreshadowing in this literary. I think probably so. But at this very point, you've got the angel of the Lord who doesn't come to the husband. He comes to the wife, has this encounter. Um, They know something's going on, aren't really clear with it. It's going to take a few times to make it clear. Um, Bob Chisholm says this, through his portrayal of Samson's parents, The narrator seems to be telling us that Samson was entering an environment of spiritual dullness, where people were not attuned to the Lord's purposes and revelation, not expecting him to intervene in any significant way. Um, I don't know what all the details are, but I do get a sense that, that Samson's parents are not expecting that God is going to do something in all of this because they're crying, they're anticipating, their faith is so great. I think they're caught off guard. Wow, this was awesome. Um, maybe spiritual dullness is a little, uh, little too far, but, but at least not tuned in to what, what God is doing and what God is up to in all of this. Um, I've had to wait a long time to get here. The family in the book of Judges is just constantly on a decline. These families are not working well. They're fighting with one another. Um, You've got brothers killing other brothers. Um, You've got parents who are uh, setting their children up to not pay attention to the Lord, but to succeed in the ways of the world. And here you've got a a family that's just not tuned in to what God is doing. Um, Pause to make just an application. Marriage and family decline. Do we have to even question whether that's a reality in our world. We have so many childish parents these days. (laughs) Parents who who are trying to dress like their children and act like their children, and um, parents who are uh, (laughs) probably better at video games than their kids are. We've got families that are far more child-centered than family-centered. Um, their children's activities drive them, not family activities. And, and you've just got families with misplaced priorities. Their priorities are, are somewhere other than making sure that you are ready and prepared to serve the Lord. And that the celebration of, of Easter would be a priority. Um, or that... Um, regular connection with God's people in a context that's, that's encouraging becomes um, something you prioritize. I'm not saying that, I mean, you guys are here. What, I'm preaching to the attendees. I'm not preaching to the choir. Um, you guys are here. I get it. Um, but it's so easy for, for church and the Lord's 
activity in your life to be an accessory, not a priority. And, and families drift. And when families drift like that, the Lord may be up to all kinds of things. Your son's going to deliver the people. He's going to begin to deliver the people. And you're kind of unaware of it. And you don't even mention that part in the conversations you have at home. God delivers when, um, when we don't ask for it because he's gracious. And God delivers even when we don't understand. God delivers his chosen people, you and I, solely on the basis of his grace in order to advance his purposes and be faithful to his covenant promises, even when we don't understand what really is going on. This is, that's really what this passage is, is, is going to show now. Then Manoah prayed to Yahweh and said, Excuse me, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent again come to us and teach us what we should do concerning the boy who will be born. By the way, I've got no problem with the prayer. Ask the Lord, but do you see what he asks him? What we should do concerning the boy who will be born. He's already told him he's going to be a Nazarite. No wine, no contact with the dead, eat only clean things, and don't cut his hair. You already know how you're supposed to raise him. You've got a whole chapter in the Bible, number six, that tells you how to raise the boy. But he's either not trusting his wife, there's some kind of communication breakdown, but he wants more. He wants more conversation. But God graciously listens to the voice of Noah, and an angel of the Lord came again, but to the woman again. I don't, this is baffling to me. God is answering his prayer, but, but the Lord doesn't come to him. The Lord comes to the woman. She was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. The woman quickly ran and told her husband. She's doing what she should do. She ran. She told her husband. She said to him, look, the man who came to me the other day appeared to me. I mean, my suspicion here is not only in this passage, <laughs> but I think in our world today, perhaps maybe even in my family, if the Lord wants to say something, he's probably going to talk to my wife, not to me. Shouldn't be that way, but very often it is. So Manoah got up and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, are you the man that spoke to the woman? She just told you he was. What's your problem, Manoah? I don't want to know your name. I want to know her name. <laughs> are you the man who spoke to the woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said to him, now, when your words come true, what will be the boy's manner and life of work? I've already told her, but he's looking for something different. And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, let the woman be attentive to all that I said. I've already told her once. She needs to be attentive. She should not eat of anything that comes from the vine or drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. She should keep all that I commanded. He reiterates, I've told her. Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, please stay and let us prepare a young goat for you. The angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, if you keep me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering for Yahweh, you can offer it. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of Yahweh. He, he doesn't get it yet. Um, I, I don't know exactly what's going on with the meal. Just on the surface reading, he's just being hospitable. There may be something else going on. He may be trying to delay him to get more information. We don't know exactly what's going on. Um, it seems a little odd. Manoah said to the angel, what, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. But the angel of Yahweh said to him, why do you ask my name? It's too wonderful. Um, knowing his name, 
was probably not a, a good request. He, he, he likely was trying to know his name so he could have some kind of control and use the name for power. But the angel of the Lord says, you, you, can't, you can't know my name. It's too wonderful for you to know all, that, all that's wrapped up in who you're talking to. This word wonderful, one of my favorite Hebrew words in all the Bible. It's the Hebrew word pale. Um, I, I know that means nothing, but, but it's the word that throughout Scripture means something is awesome. Not awesome like, oh, that mac and cheese was awesome. Okay, I mean, we use the word in the wrong ways, okay? It means awesome in that it creates awe. It's awesome in the sense that um, your knees kind of buckle when you see it because you, you, you're struck with it. It's incomprehensible. Um, it's beyond our understanding. It can be translated as miraculous. Um, it, it is the word that is used when, when God tells Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a child in their old age, and they laugh. <laughs> you got to be kidding. <laughs> I'm old. She's old. We don't do that. And God says, is anything too palais for the Lord? Our God does awesome palais things. He does things that are incomprehensible, they're unattainable. And he says, I would tell you, but you, you couldn't understand it. I mean, the, the New Testament version of this is at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. We could never finish exploring them. Um, heaven will not be boring, by the way. We are headed for a new heaven and a new earth with resurrection bodies doing wonderful things, um, enjoying a new unfallen earth with unfallen bodies in relationship with other unfallen people for eternity, exploring and worshiping the unfathomable depths of God that can never be reached to their farthest extent. Um, oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. My name is awesome. And in fact, you can't get it. And Manoah took the young goat in the grain offering, and he offered it to Yahweh on the rock, to the one who performs miracles. This, it's clear now that this is Yahweh. And Manoah and his wife were watching. It, it, it emphasizes they're watching this. Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward the heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame uh, of the altar to heaven while Manoah and his wife were watching. And they fell on their faces to the ground. <laughs> they're going to finally get it. The angel of Yahweh did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. And then Manoah knew that he was a messenger of Yahweh. And Manoah said to his wife, We will certainly die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If Yahweh wanted to kill us, he would not have taken from our hand the burnt offering and the grain offering or shown us all these things are now, are now announced to us, um, things such as these. Um, I'm going to pull all this together with a quote that is 
about the passage and about every marriage in the room. He was wrong, of course, as his wife at once realizes. But to her credit, she does not mock him. Instead, she patiently assumes the role of teacher and instructs him about the logic of the situation. That is what happens in this passage, and that is marriage. He's wrong, of course, and his wife realizes it at once. It's a good marriage because, to her credit, she doesn't mock him. Instead, she patiently assumes the role of teacher and instructs him about the logic of the situation. I I, I do think this kind of locks in this issue with their parents, okay? Uh, Manoah doubts his wife. He distrusts his wife. He's spiritually dull. He's slow to discern, and he comes to the wrong conclusion. The guy's going to kill me. On Manoah's side, or Manoah's wife's side, she's never named, which is really perplexing to me. She's more perceptive than him, but she's not really clear in her perceptions. She gives an incomplete report. She's focusing personally on the report to her. That's why I think she leaves out, he's going to begin to deliver. She's like, I'm supposed to be a Nazarite. (laughs) But she does come to some correct conclusions here. Um, Again, who are the good guys in the story? Only God. Everybody else is at most spiritually dull. The, the grace of God is present when we don't ask for it. He delivers. The grace of God is present when we don't even understand what's going on around us. And the grace of God is active when we're not in control. God delivers his chosen people solely on the basis of his grace in order to advance his purposes and be faithful to his covenant promises. When we don't ask, when we don't understand, and when we have zero control over what happens. The woman bore a son. She called his name Samson. The boy grew big, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in the camp of Dan between Zola and Eshtaol. Now, later on, you're going to see that the spirit of the Lord is going to come upon him like the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and, and others. But here, it's, it's the Spirit of the Lord is, is, is beginning to, to stir him. It's, it's a really good description for what happens at the beginning of these stories. Um, Robert Alter, big scholar, says, The usual verb for the descent of the Spirit on a judge, which will be applied to Samson in 1419, is selah. Um, it, it sets upon him. Only here do we have the verb paim. The basic meaning of the root form of this is foot, and it means to stomp or pound. It's disturbing. You almost get the sense of agitation that the Spirit of the Lord is starting to agitate Samson, and he's getting nervous. It's like there's something I've got to do. The Spirit is stirring him up. He's disturbed about some things. And that's how our passage ends. Samson's born into a family that's kind of minimally aware of what's going on, but not really clear. It takes a number of different uh, reports to get them to understand how serious this is. Samson's born, and he's just troubled here at the beginning. I think the passage shows us that the grace of God dominates the story of God for the glory of God, regardless of our participation or understanding. God's grace is is the common denominator in the book of Judges. (laughs) Because the decline of God's people is clear. 
But the constancy of God's grace is what is comforting. Not the hope that one of these guys is finally going to get it right. In fact, they've been very clearly and literarily and artistically designed to have 12 of them so that you have this symbolic coverage of the entire 12 tribes of Israel, all of them in a decline. It's going to get worse after we finish with the last judge. But God's never given up on his program because he's got a story that he's writing that in the chapters after Samson, it's going to say there's no king, there's no king, there's no king. We need a king. We're going to get a king, but it's not the one we need. There's going to be a lot of kings after that. None of them are the ones we need until finally God in his grace provides us with King Jesus. So where I want you to go with this passage, remember this truth. God's grace and not our performance is central to God's story. I'm totally okay taking Gideon and Jephthah and Samson off of the pedestal Um, because God's grace is central to the story. He's the hero every time. There's a warning here. Don't be focused on your own story so focused that you miss what God's doing in his story. I I really do think that that Manoah and Manoah's wife, whoever she is, um, they're so focused on themselves that they miss God's doing something great here. So, So pay attention to the story God's writing in your life. God's redemptive work for us is taking place whether we ask for it, seek it, know how it's taking place, or anything like that. 